tennis fans to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vilander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of kickserveradio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And, of course, I'm joined by Tennis Hall of Famer Mats Vlander. Johnny Levine, a Texas Longhorn Hall of Famer, will be joining us later in the show. We've also got a special guest today, Andy Zerker, who was an All-American at Notre Dame in the mid-'90s, uh, who's going to give us an update on one of his former teammates, uh, a, a story uh, that is very tough to hear, but also very inspiring. We'll be talking to Andy next. And before we get started, Matt, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just make mention of the fact that it has been announced recently, and people may or may not know that uh, I will be stepping away from the USPTA as Intermountain President after three terms. This is my sixth year. But more importantly, uh, Fred Viancos has accepted the job as the executive director of USTA Texas. So he'll be moving from Florida back to Texas to take that job. Freddie and I grew up in Texas together, and he is uh, very highly thought of in Texas, very well-respected and well-liked. He will do a great job for USTA Texas. And the big bombshell that was just dropped is that John Embry, the CEO of the USPTA for the last 11 years, will be Stepping aside at the end of the calendar year 2023, he is going to be retiring. He turned 70 in August, and he has done as much or more for the sport of tennis as anybody that we know. And I want to just congratulate both of those guys and thank them for all that they have done for the USPTA for tennis, not just in this country, but really worldwide. John Embry and Fred Viancos, congratulations on John, your retirement, and Freddie, uh, your new opportunity with USTA Texas. Okay. Matt, I know that the boys are in Barcelona right now. The girls are in Stuttgart playing in the Porsche Grand Prix of tennis. And I want to talk about Monte Carlo. And I want to ask you this question. What was the bigger storyline for you? The bigger takeaway, Holger Runa's consistently inconsistent behavior or Novak Djokovic losing in the second round to Lorenzo Musetti? Oh, I think it's Holger Rune, to be honest, because okay. he at times is definitely showing uh, he's living up to the hype that he's basically created himself in, in one way, which is uh, if there's going to be a big three, he'd like to think he's going to be part of it. And it's him and Carlos Alcaraz. And then he said, sinner, uh, uh, sort of. Maybe a bit hesitantly, like it's really him and Alcaraz is what I think he's thinking in his mind. Uh, Sinner's a couple of years older, but I think Hogarun, uh, besides his behavior, which is which is inconsistent, is a slightly immature. Um, I don't really know where he is when he's playing matches. I think that he cramps at the end of that match a little bit because of his erratic behavior on court. But again, I, I, I can't talk too much about his behavior. His tennis, I think, speaks for himself, for, for itself. He's a great player. He's a great ball striker. He's a really, really uh, good competitor. I think all of them are. But he's not afraid of taking chances. He's not afraid of doing a few different things. I think that the cramp issues 
most probably is more mental than it is physical because the match against Andre Rublev, uh, and by the way, which was a great finals, and I'm, I'm so excited that Andre Rublev finally got his first ATP 1000. He was very excited himself. In fact, I thought Andre Rublev, Andy, was too excited. Okay. It's like, oh, finally, I get one of these freaking things. I'm like, no, you need to win a few more because you're good enough to do that. But it wasn't physical. And for Holger Rune to be that affected by it is a bit worrying to me. But tennis-wise, Holger Rune is up there with Carlos Alcaraz to me. It's a different player. He's not as quick, but he's powerful. He believes in himself. He's got the, the variety of shot. He serves better than both Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz, for sure. And when he's on... He, he, he looks very much like he doesn't believe anyone can beat him. So it's a big surprise. Novak Djokovic, um, I think that in a way, Novak needs 15 clay court matches before he goes into the French Open. And I don't think it makes any difference anymore to Novak if he wins or loses. But he does need the matches under his belt. And I think losing to Massetti is one of those matches where, oh, well, there's a lot of Musettis out there. I need to work harder. I need to be more aggressive. I need to not allow the likes of the proper clay court specialist to be able to dictate me from the baseline. So I think it's a wake-up call that I think he will use in a very positive way rather than let's put Novak in Rublev's shoes. Having won Monte Carlo, I'm already good enough which he isn't, and I think he knows that. By the time the French Open comes around, Alcaraz is better, Rafa Nadal will be there. Everyone is playing at a much, much, much higher level. The best part about the Claywood season, Andy, is that I feel more European this time of year than I do any other part of the year, and I kind of wish that I was in Europe playing uh, playing tennis as a professional again. This is the season that makes me miss my old job the most, to be honest. It's so much fun to have four or five weeks on clay, and then the, it, it ends with the French Open. Well, if anybody is qualified to get inside the mind and or body, for that matter, of these players, it would be you with uh, with you know your clay court record uh, also speaking for itself. Francis Tiafoe gets a win in Houston on the clay. That's on American soil, but a, a red clay court nonetheless. Would it be easy to explain away the sort of the cool handshake at the net between Runa and Sinner based on what you said about maybe Sinner feeling a little excluded in Runa's comments about who's in the big three? Did that lead to maybe what was a just another in a series of what seems to be the case with Runa more often than not, or at least fairly often is these weird moments at the net after matches? Well, I mean, there's got to be something that's going on that we don't know about. And I don't really want to know about it because what happens in the locker room, what happens on the practice courts uh, between these guys. I mean, there's a competitive component to this whole thing. Uh, and and I guess you can just go and look back at, at someone like Maria Sharpova or even Serena Williams. That They're not really out there to be popular. They're out there to win. And and Holger Rune, to me, is out there to win. And, and he'll do that uh, in any way uh, that he can uh, muster up a victory. And it does seem that along the way, he will lose a few friends. And most probably he will lose a few practice partners uh, because of the cold handshakes that you, that you see that he gets all the time. And it's most probably also a little bit of 
You know what? You're a really, really good player, and it's irritating the hell out of me if you're Yannick Sinner, and I'm not going to give you the pleasure of having me look you in the eye and say, well played, because I need to get you, I need to get inside Holger Rune's head. So I think that he's on to something, Holger Rune. I think that he will learn from all these cold handshakes, and I have to believe that it's going to help his tennis uh, to be a little more humble on the court uh, so that he respects his opponent's strengths a little more, that he respects Andre Rublev's uh, uh, fighting spirit, his ball striking skills, because honestly, Andre Rublev is not a clay court specialist. He's a, he's a complete hard court specialist. So when he's winning Monte Carlo, to me, that means that he's a great player, but the level of the field is not as high now as it is come Rome, for example, and obviously the French Open. But for Holger Rune, I think he'll do well by by being maybe uh, learning how to be more humble, respect his opponent uh, in a different way, and that'll help his tennis in the future. I'll compare him, Andy, to Robin Söderling. Remember the great Swedish player Robin Söderling made a couple of finals of the French Open, and there's a very famous situation when he played Rafa Nadal, uh, on court number one at Wimbledon, yep. uh, and it was a close match. And Robin, in the middle of the fifth set, puts his hand up and he says, hold on, I'm not ready. And Robin, with a lot of sense of humor and sarcasm. his shorts out of his butt. <laughs> exactly. He pulls his wedgie out yeah, of his exactly. back, his butt, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, of course, Rafa wins in the end. But Robin didn't really have enough humility and respect in those days. And what happened when he started working really hard with Magnus Norman? He got that humility and he got that respect. With that came great results. So I think Holger Rune, that's just an area where he needs to, to mature. Some people have it in their tennis game and he has it between points and maybe even between matches. Once he gets that going... I think he's going to be top three in the world for the next four or five years. I have no doubt. I don't know if he's a hardcore specialist, grass court, clay court. He can play on everything. As you were talking about what it was going to take for Holger Runa to, to take that next step into call it manhood, if we, if we will, uh, you're talking about your, your dear friend and, and compatriot, Robin Soderling. I'm thinking Tiger Woods because I'm thinking about some of the conversations uh, a, a, that swirled around Tiger Woods in his early years on tour of the arrogance and sort of separating himself from the rest of the field, not out there to make friends, but out there to win. But in the end, I mean, Tiger is the most well-liked, well-respected and revered guy on the tour. These guys, they, they never want him to retire. Yeah. No, no, it's, I, I think it's exactly the same thing. And I think that when you have won as much, and obviously now I'm speaking from, from my own experience, when you win everything as a junior, I think that is a strength of yours, that you are that competitive and that you have that confidence and belief in yourself. But as you turn pro and as you start going up against guys that are playing four hours of tennis every day and they spend as much time or more than you do on the practice court, this is their livelihood. They're going to find ways to get their most out of them and to make their opponent the worst they can be. This is not the juniors anymore. So I think... Every development of, of a player has uh, different faces. And I think for Holger Rune, now it's time. 
Now it's time to take that step into what you called manhood and, and be more of a man on the court. I mean, he's great in the interviews afterwards. He's great right. in the trophy ceremony. No problem. It's just in the competitive moment that it seems that he might lose himself a little bit. And maybe that's why the cold handshakes, I'm not sure. They feel threatened somehow. I'm not sure again. But I think that he can only go, it can only improve his chances of being a great player and a multiple Grand Slam winner when he starts to understand that, oh, there actually is a way that you're supposed to behave on the court between points and whatever. And it'll help me in the future exactly like Tiger Woods. And he figured that out right at the right time. Remember when he was trying to change his swing? Right. And he had just won four majors in a row. And everybody's like, what, is he crazy? No, he knew that was necessary. It turns out that he did the right thing. Matt, you and Stefan and Bjorn never went through that People don't like us. You know, you, you guys wanted a real high clip at early ages, particularly yourself. You guys were able to balance the ability to win and win at a really high level, um, but but also not have people. I, I have to ask, though, no, none of the guys won a major as early as you did. Were you feeling or sensing any sort of weird vibe from any of the guys back in those days? Not necessarily because of your personality, because everybody's always loved you, but because of the jealousy of, who does this guy think he is coming in and winning a major at 17? <laughs> no, I didn't, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't because I didn't pay any attention to it. And no one, of course, without social media, you didn't really know what the likes of Anders Jared, for example, thought of me. I mean, we were and are great friends, uh, but he used to beat me in practice all the time. When he showed up and I showed up, he was a better player than me. And on a match court, he was... Uh, the script was was flipped completely. But I think I was really uh, helped by being A, the youngest of Anders Jerry, Joachim Neustrom, Michael Pernforce. And so I was still the youngest and I was always the one get, having to go and get the deck of cards in the locker room. <laughs> or, by the way, when you're on your way, won't you grab me a coffee as well Ooh. or a beer or whatever it was? You're still the youngest, Matt. So I don't care how many. So I think someone like Holger Rune, uh, I think we have to keep that in mind, that he's fought his way up basically on his own into the pros. I'm sure there were great Danish juniors that he had to compete against and international juniors, of course, but there is nobody there now. So he's on his own. And to be able to fight through that and stay at at the, the level of self-belief that he has doing it on your own, I can't even imagine what that's like. Because for me, if I didn't win it, it meant Stefan Edberg was still in the draw and they would call him, speak about his victory rather than call me and ask me how I lost yet another quarterfinals at Wimbledon because Stefan was in the semis. So Holger Rune has a serious chance of becoming a, a great, great player with many, many Grand Slams. And it's going to take a little bit of time for him to figure out what his path needs to look like in terms of popularity and respect, mostly from his peers, I think. He's at the starting line in his career, and Nadal is coming up to the finish line on his as we go into this clay court season. We can't go into it without, you know, the king of clay being being talked about. And for several years running now, it's been if he wins number 13, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing. If he wins number 14, I just don't, if he wins number 15, dot, 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 complete that sentence. No, I mean, you know, when I was watching and have been watching Carlos Alcaraz uh, in Indian Wells in Miami, and then you see Yannick Sinner. Uh, and Holger Rune playing Monte Carlo. 
Uh, I am so glad that I'm not playing tennis today because I wouldn't. I mean, you feel like there's no way I, w- I could keep up. I wonder what someone like Rafa Nadal is is really thinking when he's watching how hard they hit it, how fast they move. Uh, he must be going like, okay, so hold on a second. Like, what am I supposed to be doing to beat these guys? Uh, am I supposed to hit winners? So, I mean, for him to be injured right now, not get the the reps, not only because he needs practice matches, but I mean, he he needs to see Yannick Sinner across the net before he sees him at the French Open. I think he needs to see Carlos Alcaraz before, because very famously, of course, Alcaraz won Madrid last year. He beat Nadal, and Nadal just keeps getting better and better, and then Nadal ends up winning the French Open. That's not going to happen this year. So for Rafa to be able to to have some kind of self-belief that he can still win the French Open, I don't know. That that human mind is has to be so strong and in a way um, disrespectful or lack of respect for his opponent, for him to believe I can still beat these young guys, whereas Novak at least is out there and he's feeling the, the pressure of a Lorenzo Massetti and want to call a real, like, oh, this guy's really good and he's as good now as he was a couple of years ago. Remember when he was up two sets to love against Novak at the French Open a couple right. of years ago. Novak ended up beating Tsitsipas. So Novak learned from it. So I think for Rafa, I mean, I say it every year, I'm really worried. This year I am concerned and there is no way you can call him one of the favorites to win the French Open unless he gets three or four matches in Rome and even then I mean we're we're we have to be fair to Rafa it's going to end at some point I hope it's not while I'm still working in tennis because I love watching him do it at the French Open but with the guys playing this fast it's very difficult for me to see that he can that he can gain all that experience in the next 3 weeks and be ready for the French Open very difficult to see i hope again i'm completely wrong on the women's side matt before we uh call it a call it a segment here is it safe to say that igish fontek arena sabalenka and i'm going to throw my girl elena rubakina in are they sort of separated from the field are they sort of the is it a three horse race with those two with the potential for a you know if you're an American tennis fan potentially a Jesse Pagula or even a Coco Goff sneaking in and maybe uh, upsetting that apple cart a little bit I think it is uh in a way but I think the clay courts for women is the great uh, equalizer okay I think it's much harder to be a, a clean ball striker match after match after match for someone like Arena Sabalenka on a clay court because there're going to be days when when it's going to be hot and dry and of course her her shot goes through the court much faster but then again she can't move as well so she's going to be slipping and sliding a little bit and then you throw a bit of wind in there so i think that that Iga Swiatek becomes again the the big time favorite because it is clay because of the way that she hits her forehand on a clay court compared to hard courts where she can suddenly put way more spin on it and she can still dictate the point whereas an Arena Sabalenka how does she dictate she dictates with power and power uh you need precision and it's very very difficult to do that on the clay court on a consistent basis this week they're obviously in stuttgart and it's a much faster clay court no wind uh and i bet you you'll see a big ball striker win that tournament but that's not the case uh at the french open so suddenly the 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 most interesting case andy for me i have to say it's uns jabeur ah. uns jabeur came into charleston she's looking fitter and she's looking stronger she's playing as good there as she did last year when she made two grand slam finals in a row in in uh, uh, Wimbledon at the US Open 
And I didn't think she was going to go there, but she's actually decided it seems that, okay, what am I missing? I'm missing being a little bit stronger, a little bit quicker because I got the mind, I got the feel, I got the shots, even though they're not powerful. And I think someone like her on a clay court for Sabalenka is a major headache. But Coco Goff, I think that this could be uh, the year of Coco Goff. I really do. I think she needs a little bit of time to figure out what she did well last year. And it's not being too aggressive. It's starting to roll that forehand in with a lot of spin, make it physical and make it tricky to beat her. She doesn't have to play great to win the French Open unless Iga Swantek just goes on, on a rampage like she did last year. But the women's, again, way, way more open, uh, I think, than the men's draw come the French Open. Petra Kvitova wins in Miami, and she's back in the top 10. Do we wait for the grass to worry about her winning another major mess, having won Wimbledon a couple times? So that's the thing about the, the, the difference between the women's game and the men's game is that you often have – uh, a women player who d- plays really well on everything except clay. And because the clay court season is so long, you now, if you're Petra Kvitova, there's a risk that she racks up two or three first-round losses in these big tournaments because the depth is unbelievable on the women's game. And then suddenly she arrives on the grass, and of course she loves the grass, but she doesn't have any confidence because the clay court season is so long compared to the other seasons. And I think that for, for players that, that uh, are specialists in hard courts and clay, you can lose your confidence uh, during the clay court season and you might not get it back for quite a long time, even though you're going to your favorite tournament in Wimbledon. So it's a matter of do you play every week? Do you not worry about winning and losing? Do you even throw in a Nick Curios, which is, uh, you know what, I'd rather not play because then I don't lose my confidence and I'll go to Wimbledon and I'm fresh and now I'm in my favorite uh, tournament of the year. So I, I, I don't know. I think the, the women's uh, clay court season is so um, every year it's you don't know what's going to happen apart from Iga Schwantek is going to be there. And I think that she's going to be, whoa, she's going to be tough to beat. Well, and, and before we go, I, I'll, I'll make one more golf reference. But when they spoke to Jordan Spieth, after he came up a little short at the Masters, the first thing out of his mouth was, I've just played too much golf. <laughs> Eight tournaments in the last 10 weeks, and I just didn't – my mind was not fresh. You use the word fresh. All right, he's Matt Svelander. I'm Andy Zoden. When we come back, we're going to speak to Andy Zerker, the other AZ, my dear friend and, and a friend of yours as well, Matt's former All-American at Notre Dame. Uh, the story will blow your mind. It is a story of the strength of the human spirit and how – Uh, Although we're oftentimes competitors on the tennis court, oftentimes we are also very close and compassionate with one another in the tennis community usually ends up being there for each other. And this is a story of that. So don't go away. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Andy Zerker with a story of his good friend, Notre Dame teammate Ronnie Rosas. When we come back, don't go away. guys, Sarah Z here with a kick serve, quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say more advanced or more experienced in our life, 
How about just body weight and body maintenance? That for me is becoming, I, I think, tougher by the day. Boy, you're not alone. And along with our sports performance line, BodyFuse also offers a full weight loss line. And we have an, a fantastic product called Purify, which kickstarts your weight loss. It's a GI detox. It's a water cut as well. So it's really great for bloating, irregularity, um, and people love it to kickstart a weight loss program. And then with that, we couple a product called Blackwall Shredded, kind of a cool name. It's a daytime thermogenic um, and also has a nootropic in it. It's not super high stimulant, but it's just a, a good mental focus. And it just basically kickstarts your metabolic rate. So that's a daytime thermogenic. We also offer a nighttime thermogenic called Midnight Burn. And this has melatonin and GABA as well as a thermogenic. So it kind of continues that metabolic rate uh, bump, if you will. So that these three products are, are sort of like the magic trinity. I don't want to say magic pills because there's no such thing, but midnight burn at night, blackwall shredded in the day, uh, and then purify to kind of kickstart your system and clean out your GI tracts. And in addition, purify along with the detox, it allows us to start absorbing nutrients a little bit more efficiently as well. So those three products are just a fantastic trio and very, very popular. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the Kickserve Radio Boys. Welcome, everybody. AZ Andy Zoden here with AZ Andy Zerker. Zerk was an All-American at Notre Dame back in the early 90s. And AZ, your college tennis experience meant the world to you. And when people are like, eh, who'd you play with in college? David DeLucia comes to mind because he was probably the most accomplished player, uh, as it would happen, that, that you played with. But that's not who we're here to talk about today. Um, this is a situation where you know, the tennis community can be very competitive among itself, but it can also be very close and very compassionate with one another. And that's what our chat is going to be all about. And and I want to talk to you about your former teammate, Ronnie Rosas, who has, has really been up against it uh, in the last, you know, year or more. And his story is, is, is tough, but it's also very inspirational. Welcome to the show to talk about your good friend and former teammate, Ronnie Rosas. Thanks, AZ. Always great to to see you, to be with you, and and super excited to to talk about a, a dear old friend uh, and and amazing teammate and part of one of the more fun um, chapters of of my life for sure. So Ronnie was diagnosed with a, a, a rare disorder, which sounds I don't want to say benign enough, but sounds on the surface manageable enough. AZ, it's become anything but that. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know that he was diagnosed. He, he basically had a respiratory sort of issue where, where his oxygen levels dropped to just precipitous low levels um, to the point where, you know, his wife called 911 and, and, and raced to the hospital, raced him to the hospital. Um, and, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm probably not going to do it justice or, or, or be perfectly accurate, but essentially, um, the, the, there was so much, so little oxygen sort of coursing through his body 
that they gave him what what they call pressors. And those are designed to keep the oxygen in your core so that your 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 primary organs can can sort of live uh-huh. and can sort of stay you know functioning and, and working. That happens at the expense of uh, sort of blood flow and, and oxygen getting to your extremities. Um, and, and he had the, the maximum number of, of those, those pressers, um, applied to him in, in order to try and save his life, which, which was very close to, to sort of not being able to be done. Um, and, and as a result, over the course of the next few weeks, um, it became clear that, that not enough oxygen had gotten to his extremities and both his, uh, arms below the elbow had to be amputated. And both of his legs below the knee had to be amputated, and 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 that's in part due to the the incredible doctors um, that he uh, found, and and he lives in Dallas, but but flew to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and and the Ohio State uh, Medical um, Facility there, um, where they have an amazing sort of amputee program. I don't know the name of it. Um, but they did some incredible work to sort of save as much as they could of of the joints, because when ultimately I think you'll move to prosthetics in your future to be able to to um, you know walk and 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 things. Uh, there's even some promise that he might be able to play tennis again, believe it or not. Wow. But uh, but that's in large part due to the great work that's been done by the medical team in, at Ohio State University, and and uh, essentially just fighting incredibly hard to to keep as much of of you know, his sort of skin and, and muscle usable and, and functioning. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a poor job of describing you know, all the medical um, sort of stuff, but, uh, but I know that the work that they've done, and, and I think he's had you know, nine or more surgeries um, have given him a, a real opportunity for, uh, for a meaningful and, and, uh, and, and, a, and a life well-lived going forward. When you describe that, Andy, I can't help but think that Ronnie is the kind of guy whose purpose now going forward is to help all of us with a healthier perspective and a healthier outlook on life by kind of through osmosis, you know, getting some of of, of, of what is in his DNA. And it, it, I, I don't think there are enough people like that in the world that can do that for us. So it's nice to know that someone that you're so close with is able to through a very tough situation of his own, probably in the long run, end up helping so many people by way of his message. And as he goes forward in his life, I think that he's going to probably get a a greater sense of purpose as things move forward. Yeah. It's funny you say that because we talked uh, just this past week weekend and and he he spoke about that is is he wants to pay it forward and and he wants to you know figure out how he can how we can use his circumstances to impact the lives of others and and what I don't know what that means yet I'm not sure that he knows what that means but I know that that myself and 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 all of us sort of former classmates and teammates stand right in line with him to help figure out you know what is what are the different methods and and ways that you can uh, impact the lives of maybe of maybe children who have have had to deal with you know amputation or or things like that and and uh, part of the reason that 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 you know he, he was so loved on our team and 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 uniquely we had uh, we ultimately had five freshmen together ultimately working all the way through you know four years together and and that's unusual typically you'd have you know a couple 
from each class make up a, a team. And absolutely, uh, the team that got to the finals of the NCAAs, we had David DeLucia, as you mentioned, and then five juniors behind David, who was a senior. Um, and and we basically spent four years together, you know, on the road every other weekend, and and flying through O'Hare and 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 back to South Bend, Indiana, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and uh, what one of the one of the the, the great things that 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 we're going to benefit from. Uh, from what Ronnie's going through is that he's already sort of bringing our crew back together. And that's not just the five that I mentioned, but it's, it's players younger, older, and and all a part of kind of the Notre Dame family that are, are, are rallying around uh, together, uh, both to support Ronnie, but, but also to sort of um, reconnect and, and to, to sort of tap back into uh, those amazing memories and those amazing friendships that, that were pretty unique um, for, for that group of people. Well, for those that don't know, it bears mention that those relationships were forged and galvanized through the wars of, didn't you beat Georgia at Georgia in the semifinals of the NCAAs that year that you ended up maybe getting tripped up by Stanford in the final? But the win over Georgia at Georgia is worth it all right there because that doesn't happen. Well, actually, Georgia, we beat them in the quarterfinals. Okay, okay. As you can imagine, you know, the the was 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 Insane. boisterous and and it was just packed and that's such a neat venue to play um and and we ended up beating them in in, in uh i think we beat them five four in, in the sort of the final match on wow. and uh the next day we played southern cal who was the defending national champion and number one in the country and we pounded usc you know five nothing and and Ooh. uh uh headed into the final where i think usc had beaten stanford you know three times that year or something and uh, who knows what happens in the way that the ball bounces, but we ended up coming up short against Stanford in a big way, but uh, an amazing week. And and one of those pretty hard to imagine experiences that that was made all the sweeter because we had gone through it together with, with the band of brothers that you had sort of spent so many years with. So uh, pretty, pretty neat and, and unique experience for sure. Yeah. Five zips, pretty good score against SC. Uh, back in those days, they had beat us the previous year five zip in the quarterfinals. I think so. Incredible. It was the turnabout is fair play. Yeah, I guess. You had some good years of college tennis, AZ, uh, not just by way of the results, but by way of the relationships. And and today it's about Ronnie Rosas, and we want to make sure that we keep him in in the tennis public consciousness, if not beyond, because I know that he's going to be uh, he's going to be giving us lots to really be able to uh, you know think about and 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 ponder in, in our own lives and we want to wish he and his family the best and on a go forward we know that he's in good hands with with uh you know good technological advances as we mentioned in the prosthetics and, and in medicine and overall and and to have good friends like yourself and his former teammates i know philip farmer mentioned uh, another dallas guy that uh, yeah. i think he wrote philip's first mortgage and i think you mentioned that guys like john isner and jim courier and some guys have caught wind of this situation have been trying to, you know, kind of send him their best wishes as well. So he's, he's in the tennis community right now and we're, we're going to keep him there. I appreciate that very much, AZ. Thanks so much. And and I do hope uh, that this will be an opportunity for, for those within the tennis community to sort of come together and rally around and support somebody who's, who's worthy of support, but is, is just all the good, all the goodness that tennis kind of brings to the table is exemplified in, in the way Ronnie lives his life and the way that he's dealt with, this amazing sort of circumstance. It, it's a little bit like being down, you know, a set and five love and, and, and a few breaks and, and he's not given up and, and it's just awesome to be a part of that and, and to sort of uh, get swept up in, in the wave of his positivity. And I hope we can help create and, and form more of that positivity for him.
AZ, always a treat on behalf of myself, Matt Lander, Johnny Levine, everybody with Tennis Channel Podcast Network, everybody with Tennis Channel, all the way up to Ken Solomon. We wish Ronnie Rosas our best, and we will be talking about him again. Uh, in the meantime, take care of yourself and give Ronnie our best. Thank you, AZ. Appreciate it very much. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Final segment, as promised, AZ with Johnny. And Johnny, I wanted to finish out the show, just the two of us today, because we got a lot to brag about right now. We're going into the NCAA tournament, and the men and the women of the University of Texas, correct me if I'm wrong, are both number one in the country at the same time in college tennis. How cool is that? Well, are you sure about the women? No, I'm not sure about the women. Better research next time, buddy. <laughs> I know they're a one seed, and I know that they're the two-time defending champions. Maybe they're not number one in the country right now. The men are. They beat TCU 5-2 in the finals of the Big 12, and that's a tough conference to win in men's college tennis right now. Beating TCU, Baylor, I mean, it's a very, it is a very tricky conference. Lots of great tennis in the Big 12, and the Horns stand alone as champions, and uh, they won this thing back in 2019. Of course, as I mentioned, uh, Howard Joffe's women have won this thing twice in a row. We've watched Peyton Stearns turn pro now and come off of that team and do quite well in her first campaign on the Pro Tour, but whether the women are actually the number one team in the country or not, times are very good for Texas Longhorn tennis right now. It's incredible, Andy. I mean, both teams have been very solid in the NCAA Division I rankings the last several years, winning titles. Obviously, the women's uh, program has been amazing, and and uh, Miss Stearns is now a pro, and it's almost coming up on one year, and she's cracked the top 100, made the finals of a WTA 250 event, which is, you know, incredible uh, in her first year on the tour. And then now you talk about the men's team winning the Big 12, uh, which is a huge win for them. And Elliot Spaziri, uh, number one player, he he lost his match against TCU to the number 15th ranked player, however – um, he's currently number one. Maybe he'll drop a little bit, but he's a favorite to win the NCAA men's individuals, which I believe will be played in the fall. Can you imagine winning the team and the individual? And this, I mean, we don't have much to hang our hats on at University of Texas right now. You know, with regard to, you know, the football team hasn't lived up to expectations. Maybe it will. The basketball team, great run, didn't quite get to the final four. That was heartbreaking. Men's golf has been amazing. Men's tennis, ladies' tennis, we're a country club sports college, uh, university, Johnny. What can we say? Well, look, Andy, I mean, uh, men, men's tennis at, at UT has had quite a resurgence, and we're very proud of those guys, and they're they're great kids, and we spent a little time with them the last 12 months, and uh, we're really impressed. And Elliot Spaziri now has, has reached the pinnacle, being number one. Obviously, uh, you know, it'd be more important that he finish the year number one. And he's got a good chance to do so. Andy, let's talk a little bit about last week's Monte Carlo. I know we're into Madrid this week, but looking back um, at at Monte Carlo, can you give me just kind of a summary of what you thought, how that tournament ended up with Rune 
in the finals against uh, Rublev. And and give me your thoughts on on how the week unfolded. Well, obviously the week unfolds early with an upset with, you know, Djokovic, who with Nadal being injured, you're thinking about Djokovic along with maybe Alcaraz, if he gets healthy as being your your favorites to win the French. So I think, you know, obviously Djokovic losing uh, to, to Lorenzo Massetti was, was you know, a little bit of a shocker, although Massetti had a great run. He had three straight sets, Johnny, that he won six love. He won a match seven six six zero, then he wins six zero six zero. So three straight bagels. I don't know how many times that happens in pro tennis. Then he takes out the Joker five in the third. I thought that was a pretty big storyline. Obviously, you mentioned Runa and Rublev playing in the final. I think that was Rublev's first uh, Masters 1000 win. Runa had him 4-1 in the third, and then he went crazy. You texted me, and you said, I don't know what's going on with this kid. And this seems to be the thing that people are going to have to be concerned about, Runa fans, is which kid is going to show up, and is he going to last an entire match? Because, Johnny, I watched that kid play Mackie McDonald at, at Indian Wells, and he looked like he was on the verge of being one in the world. Came back a couple of days later and watched him play uh, Stan Warinka, and he was anything but a guy that looks like he's got the right head on his shoulders to be the number one player in the world. So great talent, still a lot of years in front of him to mature and probably work through you know, some of this childish, childlike behavior. Um, but he's got some, he's got a ways to go and, and, and good on Rublev because, you know, those Russians are, are all beating themselves up between he and Medvedev and Hotchinov and those guys. And it was Rublev's week. So good for him. Well, one other question, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a bit of a controversy with Runa and Sinner. I don't know if you saw the handshake or the very lack of handshake. Any thoughts on that? Well, you know what, Johnny, this the, the game needs a little of that right now because That's if true. we're going to juice up these rivalries and create a little bit of intrigue, particularly for people that are a little bit on the outside looking in that maybe don't follow it as closely as we do, if we're going to bring mainstream tennis fans back to the sport, once the big three leave, we got to have a little theater. Yeah, let's let's stop with all the hugging and kissing after the matches, right, Andy? <laughs> we want to see the McEnroe Connors. Yeah, a little bit of that. I mean, you know, obviously you want to see you want to see sportsmanship and you want to see grace and class like what we became accustomed with Roger and Rafa and, and Novak uh, and, and the entire sport seemed to follow suit. But then that can be overdone, like you said, and it becomes a little bit too much of a love fest. OK, real quickly, before we before we call it a night, um, the Boris Becker documentary, you have been losing your mind about how great it was. And it's on Apple TV. I have yet to see it. I don't know that Matt's has had a chance to see it, but you said that Matt's is all over it. His fingerprints and, 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 uh, and sound bites are all over that thing. What's the, what, what do people need to know? Well, first of all, it's a two part documentary. And the first one is about an hour and a half. And I watched that the other night. I have not yet watched the second one, part Part two. two. Now the first one they called, uh, it's called boom, boom. Right. Well, that's who he was when he was a kid, right? Yes. The first one, they call it Triumph, and the second one, I think they're calling it Disaster. But I will tell you the insights that you will see when you watch this thing. The first one, uh, like I said, I watched it, and, and you get the insights of how this kid came up and the tutelage under Gunther Bush, the coach, and Ian Tyriak, the manager, right. and how they took this kid when he was basically 16 turned pro. And then obviously, you know, he wins Wimbledon at 17 and, and, and life just never was the same for him. And just just the rivalries, uh, you know, what went on in, in, in his head, how he handled the pressure, how he didn't handle the pressure, 
Um, you know, they just go through so many facets of his life and the problems that he had with the, the with the German government, um, you know, the tax evasion situation. Russian government too, right? I mean, there was some later stuff. Later on. That's a little later? Later on, okay. I think in the second one. That World comes War, later. Spoiler yeah, alert. We'll find out, you know, how the, you know, how he went to jail and all that. But the, the interviews from the other top players, and Matz was one of them, were fascinating. Um, just just really in-depth look at Boris Becker, the individual and the tennis player, and how he was revered and how the different players, you know, felt about him and the McEnroe uh rivalry and it was incredible i think you'll you'll find it just fascinating the whole thing real quick johnny before we go you and i and tom fontana and i can't remember who else was at the dinner table at least i think you were there it was in new york during the u.s open and mike de palmer was at the table with us and he started telling us a few things about his relationship with boris if this documentary is just going to continue to elaborate on what that night was like with the Palmer, I cannot wait to hear and see this story because I was on the hook that night listening to what was coming out of Mike's mouth. And I mean, he was just kind of telling it like it was. I don't think he was given divulging anything that he shouldn't have talked about um, the late, great Mike, the Palmer, but it was an amazing story to hear him tell. And I think that people are probably going to be in for a real treat. Good stuff tonight, as always. Want to thank Matt for joining me in the first segment. My good friend Andy Zerker, we want to wish, again, going back to that story, wish Ronnie Rosas the best. Johnny Levine, Andy Zoden, Matt Vlander. we are the KickServeRadio.com team on Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Rounding into the clay court season, we're in, we're in mid-clay court season, and we look forward to catching up with you right before the French. See you guys soon. Thanks so much.